welcome to another episode of Sundays Today, where we encourage you to live your best life starting today. And of course, today we have with us Dr. Bolanle Akinrombi. She's a psychiatrist, a physician expert in mental health. She's also a wife and a mother working daily to balance her multiple important roles. Um, yes. Dr. Bola, thank you so much for joining us. Um, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's have a chat. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I know. So we've been wanting to do this for a while, and this actually came, you know, you mentioned um, my friend, our friend Remy earlier. This came because um, some of the stuff that you posted on um, Instagram she was like, oh, my God, you know, Dr. Bola was just saying this. So she forwarded it to me. I'm like, oh, my God, she's my spirit animal. I have to know, I want to know more and know more about this. So you're right. I apologize. I don't know the term. I shouldn't have said that. I don't know. <laughs> well, well, what is that? I didn't hear him. He said spirit I, I animal. I know what that means. I know what that means. You know what that means, obviously. I know what that means. I say it. So, <laughs> so since then, I've been semi-stalking you on Instagram, love all of the wonderful <laughs> postings that, that you share, and just great um, tips around staying mentally fit and the importance of it, and it really reducing the taboo around it. So really, before we jump into it, because I'm very excited about this topic, um, I want you to sort of do a brief introduction of yourself to the audience, and then we'll jump Ooh. into it. I felt like you introduced me already, but let me try again. So yeah, that's hey, me. That's all of me. Why don't you add some color to it? Or <laughs> whatever we should not have, I should have and didn't. Like, yeah. This is the time to uh, be- Shoot your own horn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been tuned. I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, Bola, I love to ride. I love to chat sometimes. I love to dance. I always love to tell people about that. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I, um, I love psychiatry. I'm a psychiatrist. I think I like to think that I practice psychiatry in a different kind of way because I don't just like to shove scripts in people's hands. I pre-psychiatry feel like I connect well with people. And so as part of my work, I like to um, connect with people, provide a little coaching, a little therapy, a little bit of whatever works because for each person, what they're coming with requires something a little different in addition to a script. So that's my style of practice. Um, is that it? I think that's it. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can jump in there. Mag, did you want to say anything before I um, fire you off? Let me see. What, why? why did I don't you, know. You, I feel she like usually like blocks out the room and I have to figure out how to get in. So it was like, I'm kind of shocked. Like, did you I know, really I know. You know why I'm so, Well, you're a psychology major, so you're important in this one. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> and you know what? You know why I'm also You asking? know, psychologists need the most help. So maybe what I need is to figure out how you're going to help me solve my own issues. Solve the issues. I'll, I'll let you know when I solve mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I think part of the reason why I'm nervous is because I feel like Dr. Bola is going to be analyzing me like, God, can Matt get the word in? She's just going on and on. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. work. It's the last <laughs> thing I wanted to. She's going to know. I'm on my best behavior today. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, we don't do a whole lot of that. Uh, I, unless you do like a psychoanalytic background training, a lot of psychiatrists don't tend to do um, psychoanalysis, which is like the a bigger domain for psychologists. 
Hey, Max. <laughs> um, we, we do a lot of like looking at behavior and, and, and planting it in some way and using psychotherapy to help people. But outside of work, most of us just want to turn it off. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. I bet. So how did you, how did you get into um, psychiatry? Has that always been something you knew from a younger age that you wanted to get into? No, not at all. I I am um, so career wise, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor. I didn't know what kind of doctor, but I always and I I grew up in Nigeria clearly. And the, the people, the experts we used to go to were called consultants. I've always wanted to be a consultant. I didn't know what it was. It just sounded like something really nice. And the people you go to for um advice or you know people that are considered experts so I always wanted to be a consultant but I didn't really know exactly what that meant it just sounded really cool and looked really cool and I, I liked going to someone who seemed to know a lot of things so mm-hmm. come to America uh, I guess I didn't pursue the lawyer thing because I was worried that I would have like too heavy of a African accent to succeed as a lawyer oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I then you know focused on the medical route and I mean I I knew that I would do well in any field that um, involves talking to people engaging with people I engage with people very well one-on-one not so much in a crowd but one-on-one I tend to be better with people so anyway that there goes the lawyer dreams I started on the medical route got into med school did the med school thing and I did not consider psychiatry because like in the Nigerian community it's something that's not considered. A lot of people don't even consider it real medicine or, you know, or then there's the stigma of um, if you're in psychiatry, you must be crazy. That's why you talk to crazy people. And people think of psychiatry as the scope or the domain of crazy people in quotes, uh, typically thinking of a person with schizophrenia, picture of a person like that is like that person who's dirty and running naked in the markets. That's what Uh people think of when they think of psychiatrists and they think you're very close to that also if you're taking care of people with that. Anyway, psychiatry was never on the radar. I started, I think it was sometime in personally also self-disclosure. At some point in medical school, I did see a therapist myself, not a psychiatrist, but a psychologist. It was really my first encounter with a psychologist Mm -hmm. because up until then, it was always something that not black people do. (laughs) So when I saw a psychologist myself for some personal things that was going on in my life at the time, was the first time it opened my mind to the possibility, but I didn't consider it for myself. I was just like, oh, this isn't so bad. I like this. This I like this guy's job. I can do this. Mm-hmm. This this is fun and helpful. So third year when we were rotating, third year of med school is when you rotate around all the departments um, to really kind of start to zone in on what you might like, what you might be drawn to. I was drawn to a couple things for different reasons. I was drawn to emergency medicine. I was drawn to pediatrics. And when I landed in psychiatry, Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I was working. Pediatrics, I quickly like said, no, I don't want to do this. The kids are fine, but parents, oh God, no. (laughs) (laughs) So I jumped pediatrics. I tried emergency medicine. It was fun. I love the adrenaline. But when I went into psychiatry, I didn't feel like I was working. And that's when I was Mm -hmm. like, I can do this. This feels like me. And they always told us then that if you're in a um, specialty and you feel like you fit in, and you feel like you found your tribe, then that's probably what's fitted for your personality. So I found it as home. 
I wasn't sure. I didn't tell my family. And again, like most Nigerians love internal medicine or OB. Those are the only real medical specialties to most Nigerians, internal medicine or OB. Anything else is kind of like foo-foo. So I wanted to solidify that thought. I then took, a, as a fourth year, we have electives, which is when people go to solidify like their specialties. So I picked psychiatry for one of my acting internships, which is when you go there, you act as though like you were the primary on the team, you take leadership roles, you take on patients independently, you make decisions. I mean, all supervised, but taking on a more active role. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I can do this. This this is me. It doesn't feel heavy. I love the material. I love working with people. The crazy people, they're my people. <laughs> we have fun together. You know, we're not all so different. Everyone in the unit is someone's brother, mother, sister, father, and at the end of the day, they're people. And I found the subject fascinating. So that's how I um, landed in psychiatry. And then after I selected psychiatry and telling my family that that's where I was going, I was fully expecting a, oh my God, what are you thinking? And they were like, actually, you have an aunt who's a psychiatrist. Oh, so I really? Really? Yeah. yeah. So I didn't know. It's like it's an aunt by marriage and I knew she was a doctor, but I had never heard of her being a psychiatrist because no one just ever talks about it. She lives in yeah. Nigeria. She's a you know, professor. She comes here for conferences, but I never knew her specialty until I said, this is what specialty I wanted to do. And they're like, oh yeah, talk to her, you know, you, you, you know, so I found out about that after the fact and I you know talked with her and she was like oh cool awesome blah 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 so here we are <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool that's pretty cool so it's interesting that um you know you found like you were able to gravitate towards that because I would imagine and maybe it's because like you said just how you're wired um I would imagine that it would be somewhat heavy especially if you don't have any experience with it you know necessarily so why was it so easy for you, what, what was the fit? Was it the humanity? Was it the topic and just the mystery behind it? Or like, I'm just trying to figure out what, what were you drawn to? So it was the connection, not just to patients, the people, but also uh, with the, the attendings or professors in there that we're working with. It, it, was con- it was mostly connection to them. It was sitting down with people. You know, you have all these ideas about who a person with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder is and suddenly you're sitting with them one-on-one which is kind of where I excel talking to people one-on-one not necessarily in a crowd but one-on-one and finding out about them and finding out that they're people too and that they have dreams and hopes and they were on the path to something before they got this disease that you can help them in some way make sense of their circumstance, maybe live with it, maybe help them feel better. But if not feel better, still find like their own path, their own happiness, even with whatever limitations and illness puts on them and, and normalizing it. And just being able to do that, I think, was very fulfilling for me. And again, it, it's so be connecting with people, finding fulfillment and feeling like I can do this day in, day out and never be bored. I get bored easily, but never be bored um, and continually finding some something new every day. We'll tell you, a, a one, not one day is the same as next. We make that joke in psychiatry a lot. 
Not one, jo- not one day is ever, you will never be bored in psychiatry. There will always be something new. It could be whatever diagnosis, but for each person, it presents very different because we all come with different experiences, different backgrounds, different interactions that makes an impact on how you present when you're not feeling well. And so you will never be bored. So th- that's what drew me to it. It's, it's connecting with people and, and, and finding, like, it's interesting. I don't feel like I'm working a lot most days. Do you have a practice? Do you have like is it your own practice or do you go in or you, I don't know exactly how it works <laughs> if you associate with a um, hospital. A hospital so I do a little bit of everything. Remember I was just saying I'm a little bit of like a, 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 a inattentive. <laughs> yes. So originally, first in training, you worked mostly in the hospital. After I graduated, I started working at the hospital first. Um, I quickly also realized I prefer in, um, outpatient work to inpatient work. So outpatient work is after people are discharged from inpatient, like the sickest people are in the hospital admitted. Once they come out, then now there's someone who uh, works with them on an ongoing basis from home. So I work at the hospital on an outpatient basis. I also have a private practice that I started three years ago. Um, where I also do the same thing. The reason why it's fun or someone might ask me, why do you have a private outpatient practice as well as a hospital outpatient practice is because it's a, it's a diff- different population. Um, in, in, in the hospital population tends to be people of um, possibly low to middle socioeconomic status, people who require a lot more supports and assistance, people who are sicker. So we're thinking about <clears throat> like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, more debilitating kind of diagnoses in the hospital setting because typically the pipeline for referral is hospital to outpatient downstairs after people leave but they come from home so that's the hospital practice uh, in, in private practice the, the people I see tend to be more higher functioning middle to upper um, SES um, different kind of problems different kind of um, diagnosis typically more depression anxiety um, different needs Right. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, goal is uh, helping people function at best at their best without any like mental health burden. And and so the the needs for the two different populations tend to to be different and the same. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Everyone's trying to, but you know, it's a different population, different diagnosis. So it provides me variety. I tend to continue to kind of see different things during the week, also, which helps me help people, but keeps it interesting for me too. Mm-hmm. So you'd say your outpatients uh, are the ones you're probably prescribing for, and then like your in your private practice, these are the ones you're doing um, therapy sessions. Therapy and- session, uh, yeah, plus prescriptions too. Actually, you'd be surprised at a lot of the people you work with who also use pres- prescription medications or might encounter in regular life that you'll never guess. But yeah, more people who are insight oriented, uh, able to kind of sit through sessions talk about things and things like that i work with a lot of therapists though um not inside my private practice but um the the way that healthcare is set up right now it ends up working that we do a lot of our work uh together with psychologists Mm -hmm. so um in in, in the outpatient setting i don't tend to focus a lot on like the typical hour-long um therapy sessions i usually like have like psychologists seeing them and I'm seeing them also providing some therapy, but focusing more on medication management because it's my, more my expertise. And they're, so they're seeing psychologists, they're seeing me and we kind of co-manage most people, the vast majority of people that I see that way. I don't know if that makes sense to you in any way. No, it makes makes sense. Um, I'm just wondering, 
I don't know how important this is, but I'm just wondering um, you know, how that interaction happens because I know what you said is you like the interaction with the people. That's what you know gives you your sense of fulfillment. And so I'm wondering how the management of if you're not doing the therapy yourself, if you're only doing the management of, of um, medication, how you're getting that um, to happen? How are you getting your sense of fulfillment, or how are you so, managing it? psychologist yeah so I'm, I'm i'm not not providing therapy i'm just not doing like the deeper work that mm-hmm. people think of so like the deeper work where you're there every week um sitting on a couch for an hour and just you know talking about your childhood your your present and and, and all that and that's not what i'm doing so i tend to meet with people for at least 30 minutes to an hour too anyway but i don't meet with people weekly they'll be meeting with the psychologist weekly i do the initial evaluation typically and find out what the problem is. We point out areas of things that need to be addressed. Um, I favor a lot of, I use a combination of like supportive work. So someone's going through some hard life things in the 30 minutes that I have, once I've knocked out the medication questions, we spend the rest of the time kind of doing more ongoing practical um, support, uh, making practical changes. I like cognitive approach, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is more of a, um, this, are, this is how we're changing our thinking, um, to change how we feel in the moment, more kind of homework-based type work. So that's what I tend to do in sessions. Uh, and, and oftentimes some people, we're also talking about exercise and teaching people how to do breathing exercises, teaching people how to do mind, mindfulness practices. So not classical therapy in the sense, it's kind of like an eclectic you know, depending on what the person is presenting with and what I think they might need. Um, for their own particular situation, I do something like that. And then if someone needs deep work that requires long-term change in behavior, so someone who has a pattern of burning bridges in their lives that mm-hmm. has led them to where they are as part of their overall presentation, I will say, I want you to say, but the psychologist, and you're going to, you know, see who hurt you and <laughs> when you were a child <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and how you develop this pattern of behavior and working, you know, that that's a, a more a longer, deeper kind of work that, you know, that I have people sit with the psychology center. But in terms of like the quick, how are we getting you back to function now? What, how are we changing your thoughts? How are we changing your mindset? Cognitive stuff. That's more what I do like in my 30 minute quick sessions. Awesome. So it sounds like it's um, sort of holistic um, practice where you're dealing with the body, the mind, the, the connection between what you're thinking. That, that's the goal. Connected. That's the goal when it works well. <laughs> that's what? I said that's the goal mm-hmm. when it works well. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Hmm. Um, you're being very um, deferential I mean, right now. <laughs> <laughs> I do have questions, but no. you are all in it. <laughs> I, I like I mean, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, okay, so, and I, Usually I'm kind of, you know, deferential because I want, um, I don't know exactly where she's leading it. And, you know, she's the leader of of everything. (laughs) (laughs) How would you analyze that, Dr. B? (laughs) No, I'm staying out of this. My glory from the the play yard. (laughs) That now makes me want to leave everything. I don't know. <laughs> Staying out of this. <laughs> I've already analyzed. I already know all the problems. I'm here. I'm. I'm gonna fix it. But no. Um, uh, no. Uh, so I was. Um, 
going to ask you, because you say that you mentioned this in the beginning, that you have a specific um, methodology. I don't even want to know if I can call it that, but it's the way that you view the practice and what you do that's, a, you know, a bit different than, I guess, I don't know if it's how it's practiced, and I'm paraphrasing, so I may not be getting it entirely right, so correct me when you do answer. Um, but, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense for what you do that is different and, um, you know, see how I can, uh, um, I guess, apply Incorporate <laughs> no, it. No, I can see how I, how, you know, because part of what we're doing in uh, some days today is essentially um, a certain level of psychology, right? It's, um, it's uh, you know, yeah. analyzing. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I think it's analyzing, you know, fears, which is a, a thing that people um, have uh, a lot of that we problems all struggle with. with. In fact, mm -hmm. just take my word for it, since I'm the psychology major. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, uh, but I just, I just want to see what your sense is, so I can, um, I guess, more than anything, just, just follow up and take over. So I feel like I started I, I started to talk about that a lot in terms of how my practice is different. Um, it's it's okay. incorporating everything. Just you know, I feel like I went into the details just a few minutes. It's it's trying to look at okay. people kind of in a whole you know as a whole person, right? So the the way people think of a psychiatrist, especially in so in the past we thought of psychiatrists as people who you sat on their couch, you know, for an hour like a psychologist who practice very similarly. That's how we thought, thought of psychiatrists. And then we went into the biological kind of realm, which is where the pendulum swung. And it was like now it for, for, for many practices you see a psychiatrist for like maybe two minutes, you get a script and you're done until next time. So what I started to do different was to try and look at people from a whole um, person view, right? So in, in, in the sense that, I'll, I'll give you one like straightforward example uh, enough that many people might relate to, like depression is very different. Um, it, it's, the, depression is very different from each people. Like you pick up the DSM, which is considered the psychiatry Bible. It tells you a person uh, has low energy, low appetite, um, self-neglecting, not motivated, um, or either eating. You know, there's this checklist of things that you look at. And when this person meets this criteria, you know, they diagnose depression, you write a script, biological model, you know, hand a script, keep it moving. And that's how a lot of people practice. What I... Uh, for depression, for example, I know that, yes, when a person is depressed, there's something going on in the brain circuitry that's caused them to go in this phase. But what is it? How did we get there? A medicine, and many people, many patients will tell you, medicine doesn't fix everything. A medicine is not going to reverse a child, for example, a crit criticism I heard from someone is a child who's being bullied. I don't care how many medic uh, uh, pills of, of antidepressant you give to them. If you're not addressing the bullying, if you're not addressing how it's affecting their self-esteem, they're not going to get better. They will never get better. They, in fact, they have a higher chance of getting better if you're looking at, okay, this is a bullying situation that's triggering depression. Let's look at that. How do we prevent that? How do we fix the damage of, you know, a child who's been bullied who now has low self-esteem? How do we build it back? Who do we send them to to build it back? So where was I going with that? So what I try to do is I look at things more from that perspective of what is the core issue or someone who's having uh, repeated relationship um, problems because of their own pattern of behavior 
all the medicines in the world might help them knock out at night and, and numb themselves and go to sleep. But until they look at how they develop this pattern of engaging in relationships that's now causing them to fall out with everybody, that's now keeping them in this perpetual cycle of being down and sad all the time, they will never be fixed. We've not helped them. We're just kind of playing around. So, um, I, I so like you know I, I'm just thinking of how things interplay like that. So what I think I do different, or I try to do different, as someone who's also you know sat a lot of times in, in the therapist chair, is saying where how did we get here? Yes, this collection of symptoms is labeled as this, but a script is not going to be the answer for everybody. So someone who's not sleeping, I, I've met people who are depressed. And I kid you not, when we do a full history of how did we get here, it's that they have three jobs. So they're working from X time to X time in this job, and the second job they run there, and then a third, and they have three children at home. And when they get home, they're a superhero mom. They're expected to do all this housework and cleaning and raising the children. And they're like, I'm depressed. I, you know, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm down. I can't eat. I don't want to see anyone. And it's like, well your body has been taken on more than it can ever hold. That is how we get here. I can throw a script at you, or we can look at your schedule in your life, and you can look at what you're willing to give up. Whether you're willing to respect your body as a human. You're not a hero. You're not superhuman. You're a person, and your body can only take so much. And after it's taken all it can take, it's going to tell you no more. So you're going to get to the point where you get up one morning and you can't get up. You can't get out of bed. You can't eat. You can't answer to anyone anymore. And we, we take you out of work. We take you out of circulation for a month where all you're doing is laying down, caring for yourself, having someone tend to you, and you're suddenly a whole person with or without medication. But knowing that you've looked at your body as a human and you've respected it as a human body instead of a superhero's body and done mm -hmm. that. Um, typically when people are doing too much, they're not eating right. They're either eating junk, whatever junk they can pick on the go. Uh, they're, they're not sleeping and our body needs sleep and food to function. And if we neglect that and don't acknowledge that and put that in play, you're not going to get better. Yeah. I can give you medicine that, you know, gives you, give you a stimulant, it keeps you running, but you're going to eventually burn out. So Gosh, where was I going with this? Um, no, no, no. So, <laughs> you're telling me And you know what? I, I, um, I, I definitely get it. And my assumption was that that was how we practiced. But I'm getting the sense that, you know, like you said, psychiatrists tend to just give them medication. I, and, I, and I know that there is a phenomenon of over-medicating people. You know, a lot of people going in to get <clears throat> assistance, but mm -hmm. they're, they're using medication for areas where it's like more of a, um, a, a, a whether it's therapy or if it's a physical issue like you know not sleeping or exercising that sort of thing so yes I, I do get the sense that it's not necessarily practice as you do you do it or even for children I would imagine yeah. that the way you practice is probably extremely beneficial for children which is helping them deal with like identify coping mechanisms or um, avoid certain patterns so that they can be set up for success in the future. So I don't work a lot with children because working with children requires like additional child specialization, which I don't have. 
So mm-hmm. the youngest people I work with tend to be like 14, 15, because they're adolescents. I mean, I have some child training, but I'm not child specialized. So I don't work with children. But I work definitely with a lot of adolescents who benefit from, you know, seeing things a little different. Like, as you might remember, and it was a long time ago, there's like a lot of high school girl drama yeah, that yeah. affects like esteem and low mood and people lash out okay, um, hold on. And, a, and a lot of go ahead i got no uh girls and boys right no, no, but this, was specific <laughs> girls. this was like a, like a mean girl there was a mean girl phenomenal a mean girl yeah, oh, yeah. I you remember like when she was in high school no, no. <laughs> just talking in general about like you know that what the, the high school and and, and the mean girl phenomenon and hierarchy yeah. and the queen bee and how everyone's stumped under them and how then this affects image and then the current obsession with um body image especially like in a lot of my dancers you know uh, obsessed with looking a certain way even though your body will never be that way because you're genetically just not built that way or um uh, so that, that's a, so I, I see a lot of that in the adolescence, like learning how the world works. And it's like, actually, this is how it is in the world. <laughs> Better mm-hmm. start, you know, learning how to operate in that and working on self-esteem and understanding that you're not terrible, you're not ugly, you're just not fitting someone's idea of whatever it is that they think people should look like and, and correcting that early on rather than later. But yes, I only mostly work with adolescents when I work with young people. Yeah, but that's, that's actually the age group that I was referencing as well, because I think, you know, that is the age, especially puberty, middle school, high school, when you do start to feel, um, to question yourself, do I belong? That's when you start to realize that the world may be um, specifically set up for certain individuals, and maybe you're not necessarily part of that group, and then how do you deal with it? So, um, yeah, so I would imagine, like, having those coping mechanisms. And I don't even know what a parent, because I have um, two children who are um, 14 and 15, and I would want to know what signs to look for so that I know when to say, okay, maybe we should see a therapist just to help you deal with certain things, as opposed to, you know, some teenage, I mean, teenagers do teenage-ish things. And a lot of, a lot of those teenage-ish things are asshole-ish things so <laughs> yeah it is the age like, how do we recognize this is, is this asshole-ish behavior or are you exhibiting certain signs that would require me to come in and kind of correct in a way that could set you up for success better in the future so i, I would say definitely um when to get worried might be typically when there's a change in in personality mm-hmm. It's Mm -hmm. worth exploring. It's worth looking at at least. It may be nothing, but whenever there's a change in personality, so a formerly um, happy life of the party child starts uh, spending time in their room and and, and closing the door and drawing the blinds, it could be a phase because teenagers have phase, but I think it's worth saying, hey, what's going on? And if there's good communication between parent and child, then hopefully the child would be comfortable at least letting you know that there's something going on, there's something bothering them. Or if there was a a, a previously quiet, reserved person who's suddenly taken risks, um, being a little overly friendly with strangers, doing things that they normally wouldn't do, missing at dinner table, um, 
you know, it's, it's usually changes in a person and no one particular change is bad. It's just the drastic, the, 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 the drasticness of it that highlights that maybe it's something to look at. Again, not every change is a problem, but I think it warrants the conversation to explore for it further. What um, I, I, I might say a little different that might be helpful also would be that we should have a relationship. A lot of parents don't have a relationship with their teenage child. Mm-hmm. Especially, I know a lot more about, you know, African Nigerian type cultures where it's a, a more hierarchical culture, children are not uh, heard or whatever, or not seen, are just seen and not heard. And, and so there's not that rapport. And there's the keeping your head in the sand, especially like if you're overly religious and just pretend that children know nothing, you know. And, 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 and not knowing, so even when there are problems, you either don't hear it or they don't feel comfortable telling you or they have a persona for you that you see as a parent uh-huh. and then a, a completely different persona <laughs> at school and elsewhere in the world that throws you off completely, throws a parent, not you, but the parent, yeah, yeah. off completely yeah, yeah. On, on what the children is. So I think even the, the first thing is learning to build a sort of a rapport with children as they grow older because... They could be under a parent's thumb, but, you know, soon enough, they're as big as you, taller than you. The, the old, you know, I'm the boss will not work anymore. And it's better to start preparing and having a relationship, a friendship, rather than like that hierarchy. I'm the boss. I'm the parent. I speak. You keep quiet kind of dynamic um, to start with. I think that that's what we need to start with in the first place, especially in, in, in my community. <laughs> I, I, I have a question about that um, sure. on you know, it's going to get um, a little bit um, in my soapbox right here, not necessarily because I have a, an opinion, although I, I think I do. But in any case, um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure you're aware of, you know... Um, Helicopter. No, no. So um, I'm pretty sure you're aware of this whole tiger mom mm-hmm. phenomenon that was big a couple of years ago. Uh, tiger mom, it was this uh, woman who was an Asian woman. He, she talked about how, you know, foreigners for the most part, but specifically... Um, Asian women, but she, she did talk about some Africans who did the same thing, and it's essentially what you just talked about, where the idea is, I'm going to not not just be seen and not heard, but it was more specific to my idea of what success means for my child and how I'm going to accomplish that, and the idea was that I'm going to force you to do certain things that I think you should do because I know what's best. You don't yet know, but once you start to see uh, you know, some success, you're going to start to like it as well, and that is part of the reason why uh, immigrants do so much better now than um, Americans have in the past. And so I, I just bring that on, just, um, uh, you know, provide that description so you can see where I'm going. Uh-huh. And so the idea is that, um, you know, it, it is true that there is some level of that to some extent that I feel like I've gone through as, as a child of an immigrant. And I feel like a lot of the people that I'm around who have also gone through who have attained certain level of success that feel like, you know, certain members of some certain counterparts in the U.S. do not necessarily exhibit in terms of their values. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, whether or not this idea that we have to, I mean, this is not to say that we shouldn't have any relationship, but I feel like there has been a pushback um, against that sort of thing to the extent where now parents are trying to be their, their children's friend and I think to the detriment of the idea that these, this is a person who does not yet, know, he hasn't lived, you know, a full life, doesn't full know life. exactly what all the issues are that he's going to have to run into. And perhaps your job is precisely to 
push them in a particular direction until they get to the point where they know. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to the balance. So thank you very much. That's the word actually I was just getting ready to say is balance. And this is a personal opinion because they're different school of thought. I absolutely agree with you. As much as I'm like, you know, a proponent of having a relationship. Can you hear me? I feel like I can't hear me anymore. Okay. Yeah, as much as I'm a proponent of having a relationship, having a friendship, I also believe that when you have to do homework, you have to do homework. I think think balance is like the word, like you hit it on. My, My, again, this is an opinion and this is my school of thought that we have to find a balance between driving our children to success because yes, they're children, they're not fully exposed. They don't know it all. We've seen a whole lot more than them. And I'm still kind of very earlier in the parenting journey, you guys are further along than I am. I am, so I'm evolving in my um, thoughts and opinion about this. I mean, my child is only four years old, and it's <laughs> so you're way ahead of me on this journey. But I'm learning also to 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 modify and adapt. One thing I'm already learning though is that each child is different. And a child is you, you, we can try to mold, but if we try to mold without um, taking account what personality the child has or what particular skills or personalities, we may mold wrong. So if you're trying to uh, make a, uh, a clay bed, let me see. So you have two materials, you have clay, you have plastic, there's so much bending you can do with plastic, uh, plastic, but clay, you can form them into any container. Plastic, you're going to have a harder time. They might break if you're not careful for their particular property. So what I am learning also is um, finding out what kind of personality, what, what type of child do you have? Mm-hmm. Not, <clears throat> and, and, and trying to work with them. So I think that the word, the watch word for this is, is balance, really. Mm-hmm. While you're trying to be friends and communicate, you can still guide, but allow choices. My dad's a teacher, so I have like a lot of teacher analogies. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, with like my youngest brother, he, when he started like wanting to, you know, pick out his clothes, um, my, my dad has an idea, you know, that old school, you need to wear, you know, a suit, you know, like a certain way. And he, my brother had his own style that he wanted to have. So then what he would do then would be to say, well, here are your two options. You still, he still, my brother still had a choice, but then the choice was still within what the parents <laughs> thought were the guidelines. So I felt like that was a good middle ground. Like, you know, we're, and I think that even when you're telling them what to do, at least if you're communicating it, I am telling you to do this because X, Y, Z, I think that's a lot better than because I said so. Because many of our generation, that's all they heard, because I said so. Well, how do you have a child become an independent thinker who doesn't go with the crowd if it's always you do as I say because I said so? How about you do as I say because I have experience, I have gone through this, this and this are the pros of what I'm telling you. These are the cons of what I'm telling you. If you listen to me, these are the possible outcomes. If you don't listen to me, this has other possible outcomes. I hope you choose right. Here are your options. But yes. <laughs> I, I, 
I'll say that um, that's something I know I struggle with. Um, number one, I'm very low on patience. So I, I think, um, <laughs> so I, I also wonder how, you know, when you're thinking about mental health, not only for children, but also for parents, because I think a lot of my anxiety kicked in once I started having children and I realized that Mac and I parent very differently. Very differently. Like, like we were brought up, I don't know if we were brought up all that different, but I think we just see child rearing from very different, different perspectives. So, so that there was that there was the trying to negotiate whose um, version of child rearing was going to win the day. And I think a lot of times we like they, they, the the versions were so different that there wasn't really a happy medium. It was one or the other. <laughs> like it was, we're gonna do it this way or this way. This is like gonna be carrot or or or, or you know. full on ice cream. <laughs> you know, like there's no happy medium here. So, so I think um, I think and when you're a young parent, now that I'm more mature, and of course you know the foundation has been set, and I think I'm now realizing, looking back, that I probably too much emphasis on things that didn't really matter that much because ultimately children just want love they want attention they want to be engaged they want to be respected but when I was <laughs> young when I was younger in my parenting I think I just had a very specific perspective of what needs to be done otherwise you go down a path and that added a lot of stress on me added a lot of stress I would imagine on Meg and I would think on the children as well. So I just also wonder, because based on your experience, you know, parents do what they know. And as much as theoretically, because I think I knew all the stuff that you were saying, you know, engage your children, talk to them, do all this stuff. But when it comes to, we got two hours to make dinner, eat dinner, y'all got to do homework and go to bed. Ain't no, ain't no talking back and forth. I don't have time. You know what I mean? So then right. I go straight into what I know, I'm the boss, my parenting, and any sort of talk back is getting squashed right away, you know? So, so he's not the I'm the boss parent? I thought he would be. <laughs> here's, here's definitely, I think, no, no, definitely she's the I'm the boss parent because from my perspective, I grew up, um, and for me, also, education came easy. It wasn't something that I had to struggle with. So um, when I, as I grew up, the way that I thought about it was, as long as you got your education and you do a sport. And that's what I knew as a child. Because for me, and that's why for me, when I first started, it was like, I don't know what to do with girls. Because I don't know whether or not, you know, a sport gets them the social gratification that I felt like I got with sports. So, you know, for me, that wasn't necessarily what I saw growing up. And so from my perspective, it was like, I don't need to go and hassle them about everything that's going on. Get your grades. And then I put you into a sport. I, I'm done. And so she had all these other things. But I, but How do you but, want a well-rounded individual. <laughs> nah, I didn't feel like I wasn't well-rounded. Okay. So I yeah, yeah. know that for me that that was enough. Like I felt like if you got your your mental health and you feel some sort of esteem, you're gonna have social situations that help around you. Out. But that said, um, the reason I say it is not necessarily because I was just like, I'm the boss, here's what happens. It's just, be, but I also feel like I'm not going to, I'm not your friend. So you ain't, you're not going to talk to me any kind of way. Like, we're not going to be like, you know what I'm saying? So the, it's that, what I was speaking to is this idea where, you know, although I wasn't as strict as Bola was, but I've seen parents where it's like, I've got to sit and have a conversation with a three-year-old about like, Come on, man. Like, it's a three-year-old. Like, um, the minute she book starts, from my perspective, the minute they start to believe that they have a say in everything, 
wait till they're 13 and you're trying to say, here's what's going to happen. That's, it's done. Like, <laughs> because we haven't established who, who the final decider the is. The hierarchy. I'm the final decider. Mm-hmm. So that's the issue for me. It's like, it's gone way too far too to far. the other side. Yeah. So, yeah. But, but, but I agree though, that there is a need for balance. Because I think for me, what I struggled with and what I realized more recently, and you'll probably remember maybe like two years ago when I realized, I think I'm taking this parenting thing too seriously. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because I I was so stressed. I was adding so much stress to the household, I feel. Um, and, And I think it's because of my understanding, just because of my own child rearing. So even though sometimes in theory, understand what it says and you should engage and not be angry when you know like just to interact differently I would imagine that maybe you see a lot of parents who are also struggling with some anxiety around parenting or having some stress around um, maybe even parenting with their partners or even disappointments in terms of how they've approached things even when they meant different but then they may have done some things that they are not all that proud of. So I'm just curious, you know, what your recommendations for, for parents are in general along those lines. Um, when, when that happens, when I come across an adolescent who I feel like part of their issues have to do with the, their parents' parenting style, I've often, and what we just recommend parent training um, mm-hmm. often to, to help with communication. I don't think I've ever heard of parent training. It is, it is a thing with the, a lot of the child child treatment people, parent training. Because apparently a lot of parents just... Actually, I, I didn't think that happened. And I was like, that's what we actually need. We need parent training. I'm ready. Where no, is it? What, why do I doubt it? You guys are so public. because i'm no expert in that field myself but i you know it is a thing with a child psychiatrist they send people for a lot of parent training and and oftentimes it's because we're we're raising children without knowing why so i'm very like purpose-based when i run into problems and 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 that's kind of my thing in my life when I'm stuck, when I don't know how, I ask myself, what am I trying to do? So at some point when I was trying to figure out with my child what to do, because you could know all this stuff, but like you said, doing it and, and knowing and doing it, two different things. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, I was raised also very, you do as I say, I'm a child of a teacher, you know how it is. Yeah. You yeah. <laughs> so so um, <laughs> I had to say, what, what, what kind of child am I trying to raise? What, what, what is my end goal? What is the purpose of, mm-hmm. of all of this? What am I trying to do? This is my personal approach. And this is just kind of how I problem solve in my personal life. What is my end point? What gets me the, there? And so that's mm-hmm. kind of, <clears throat> but it, it, a lot of parents start out parenting just by having a child because it's the social and, and, and expected thing in our society to do is to get together, have a child. And so there's no idea of what to do. There's kind of like a lot of, um just going with the flow yeah right yeah. Mm-hmm. so i think the way that parent uh, parent training helps is to kind of help them kind of see what they're trying to accomplish because each parent what they're trying to accomplish for their children is very different and so then helping them do it in a way that's not harmful to the child improving communication i think the the vast majority of all our problems tend to lie in communication, not saying what we're trying to do and not communicating or feeling it, communicating it to the other person. 
And so that's what I've heard, you know, know that a lot of the parent training sessions kind of work on is the child knows you love them, but the way you communicate to them doesn't show that. They know you mean well and are trying to help them, but the way you're communicating doesn't show that. So how do you both, and, and this child, you see them as disobedient, non-listening. How can you see that your child is not what mm. you think in that way and, and see them for who they are so you can find a middle point to to work together so i usually i am not an expert in that as you know, as you know i'm also learning as i'm going but i um i'm, I'm working on it myself but i i know i sent before parent training and maybe someday i'll sign up myself for some parent training classes too yeah <laughs> and, and and have someone you know experience to help me but i i like the purpose approach of whenever you're trying to solve a problem what is the purpose what is the end point uh we were raised for example on a big idea of raising obedient children and when I really but, tried to yeah. obedient yeah. children, yeah. I don't, you yeah. you know, like in the community, that's like a thing. Obedient children, they were like, I don't want to raise an obedient child. Yeah, I'm not a obedient person. Like my personality is a questioning personality. It's a defining things for myself personality. I would be like a fool to expect that I would raise a child would be anything different than that. I, or at least, you know, personality wise. So I need to raise a child who questions, who doesn't follow the crowd, who's independent in their thinking and telling them do as I say is not going to raise the child that I want to raise. So it, it makes it easier. And when I lose my, because I, when I do lose it, I, I, we, we do the baton exchange the child it's like you need to come get this kid i'm gonna walk away <laughs> right now so that's something that you guys agreed to prior to in terms of how to handle parenting that's very mature probably because you are in in therapy i was gonna say speaking of parenting and you and i will have established you know what the norm for parenting would have been if we had been exposed to some of these things prior to, but I remember when we first had our child. If I just listen, (laughs) but I remember when we first had our our firstborn walking Mm -hmm. out of the hospital, and both of us were just like, "This is so irresponsible of this hospital." (laughs) I just leave. (laughs) We're not ready. We need a manual. We need training. So I actually don't even understand why that's not offered. Like that's a, a standard. I would think that everybody needs something. Needs but, to have it. Yeah, yeah. But that's it's, it's, it'd be it'd be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to jump in there because I know you got a checklist. I get because I want to get to COVID, sure. and I know um, Dr. Bola is on the clock, so I do yes. want to get to how we. Um, can, can I ask my question before you get to COVID? Sure. All go right. ahead. So, um, it's not the same topic, but it's along the same topic. So um, I don't know if you're either in your practice because you are seeing different demographic groups, whether you're seeing Nigerians, African-Americans, white um, folk. Um, But I know that, you know, the idea of psychotherapy or psychiatry is, you know, like you said, it's, it's, there's a certain stigma in obviously um, Nigerian community, but also in the um, African American community. And that's something that, you know, certain groups of people have been trying to push, like mental health is a, is a big thing. And I think it's also absolutely necessary in, in places where, you know, there is a lot of poverty and the, the parents are either dealing with their own issues or they have their, it's a cycle of issues, especially in the African-American community that came from, 
you know, um, slavery, the Jim Crow era, and, you know, just uh-huh. lack of self-worth has just been put into the community as a collective, and they're just continuously passing that down. So I think there's this um, collective mental health issue. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering, both based on what we've been talking about um, in terms of the different way people raise people, but also in the way that people who aren't getting or aren't open to the idea of, of analyzing their thoughts are um, how it's impacting them as adults. Like, is it, is it, do you see a difference? Do you see a, a more, um, I guess, uh, egregious Disparity. situation? Yeah. Like within racial groups? Within racial groups. Or does, yeah. the, and if you don't see it because maybe you don't have a large enough sample group because you're only dealing with your own patients, do you know if the, um, if the research suggests? So I'll give you anecdotal, right? You're asking if I see a difference in terms of trauma for people in different populations? Yes, essentially. Okay. essentially I think that's right. I, I, would, I, I, would, I would say, um, yeah. So I, I, I don't, you're, you're from Jersey, right? I'm so what? Are you from Jersey? You know Jersey? Where? I'm not from Jersey. I'm from Connecticut, but I'm oh, familiar okay. with you. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I practice in Newark and I practice in Westfield. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not. I, I don't know. I know Newark. Okay, so you know Newark. Westfield is is close to. You, you know, you know Jersey. You don't know Jersey either, right? I was just trying to say that there is I one. Jersey. I feel like Westfield <laughs> is closer to New York, right? Like that's right. Um, there, that's there's right. a direct train line. So yeah, Westfield is bad population, high mm-hmm. affluent, high yeah. SES. Uh, people who work in New York and high-powered jobs and things like that, um, majority mm-hmm. Caucasian, and and you know, Newark is like you know primarily uh, African American community. A, a lot of um, you know, I, I encounter a lot of trauma. A lot of people with past trauma, poverty, the challenges that come with not having a lot, um, and I would say regardless of the population we all carry our traumas into adulthood if we don't deal with it. It's just that the traumas are different. Mm. But, but I think that every, everybody carries their own trauma. And until they kind of, it, it's like, an, it's, it's there. Everyone's carrying it. They're carrying different things based on the background and the challenges, but everyone's carrying their trauma. And until it's dealt with, it sits there and, and wrecks things quietly. I don't know if that's kind of no, answering your question. I'm going to jump in again because I want a quick follow-up. It seems like then that is a human issue. What Sorry. should be done at, and, and what stage? And I know we've just been talking about like, you know, raising children, but what should be done and at what stage so that we can head that off? Because I think that is part of the reason why, again, some days today is about like attaining, doing what you want to do right now, not letting fear or any other um, issues, traumas prevent you from getting there. And so what should be done and what stage to overcome those traumas so that you can, you know, reach your full potential? Ah, that's a hard one. So I prevention clearly is better than, and, and than fixing things. So I, I would say maybe to start with, we should all be talking more. <laughs> we should all be more real. We should all be encouraging children to to talk to us, to let us know uh, a lot of how they're feeling. So a lot of uh, people, for example, with like sexual, sexual, when we talk about trauma, people think of the big traumas, the sexual traumas, 
the the rape, the abandonment, neglect, those are like the big ones that we all, you know, think more of when we think about traumas. But there's also, you know, small, small traumas that impact people's lives. There's mm-hmm. things like being born at a certain time in a parent's life, maybe being born in a certain birth order where, you know, you receive less attention for whatever reason and growing up with the feeling of not being important and carrying that on, it's not as big and in your face as like, you know, the rapes and the sexual traumas and abandonment and neglect and all that. But there's all those things that form who we are and reflects in how we interact with the world going forward. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't cause us problems. We don't tend to see them. We don't tend to notice them. Many times it, it becomes noticeable when it's causing us problems. So mm. I, I believe in the talking, in the convers- starting conversation early, talking about things to people so that we can correct opinions, correct perception. A lot of our experiences, a lot of the things that are perceived, so perception is everything. You may not have abandoned the child, right? Okay, I'll give you a personal experience. A big one for me. When I went to the therapy, my I was separated from my parents when I was in uh, GSS 2. I, I went to boarding school at nine years old. I was living in boarding school, and then my parents traveled, and they weren't there. I understood why they traveled cognitively. I knew why, why they had to go to America. I knew that they were alive. But as a child, I was 12, 13, I experienced abandonment, right? No one ever... It, it wasn't an intentional abandonment. It was just they were doing what they had to do. And even then I understood why they were doing what they had to do. But I experienced like a abandonment trauma that manifested in so many ways in my life growing up as an adult. I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. I never opened it up. It was never a thing. It was, you know, we don't talk about these things until, you know, when I was sitting in a therapist chair later and saying, why are you having these repetitive patterns in your life? And, you know, that's when it, it came up, you know, you, you experienced this thing. You, I, they didn't abandon me. I knew where they were the entire time. They, they kept in touch. But from my 13-year-old mind, I experienced it as abandonment. Bye. was my perception. And that's what I carried with me. And it carried with me for a lot of interactions and things with people until I got to set it out and understand where it came from and how it got to be there. And how it was manifesting and, and, and affecting me in other areas of my life, I couldn't undo it or change that per- perception. But maybe if there was an opportunity for me to say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing, this is how I'm feeling, this and this and this and that, earlier on, before mm-hmm. many years later, I wouldn't have carried on that perception with me for a long time. Mm-hmm. So to answer the question, I think that preventively talking opening being observant is the beginning of it and then when we had to see our problem to not let it fester mm-hmm. and sit down and talk about it it's not harmful to talk about yourself people are going to know your business people know your business anyway but but there's a lot of privacy usually in here seeing an ethical you know therapist who's, who's listening who can reflect back to you no one's going to tell your business most of the time so addressing a problem when we identified, but maybe encouraging like open communication um, um, as we're going along so that it becomes a practice of knocking things out before they fester. I don't know yeah. if that 
makes sense. I tend to be long-winded. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a perfect answer. And I think to your point, Meg, that actually does feed into what we talk about in some days today, because it, it, it does take a certain amount of energy to be inauthentic, to not have meaningful relationships, to not feel like you can be your true self. So, you know, when you're constantly covering up or, or not feeling seen, I can imagine that whatever trauma you've experienced continues to get further sort of chipped at or revealed or exposed in a way that um, exposes your vulnerability and continues to maybe feed upon itself in not so positive ways. So, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, I do, I, I want to get to COVID just because we're all in a quarantine space and I didn't realize because for me, and probably for you, being an introvert, I'm, I don't mind <laughs> being home, away from the crowd, you know, the time of peace, calm, and everything is amazing, you know, and I have my loved ones close by, and the ones that I don't, you know, we have ways to communicate through video, so I'm actually okay, but then when you, when you realize that there are women who are being abused because they are in um, relationships that are not so healthy, marriages that are dysfunctional, um, and then also children who are stuck in, you know, these spaces sort of like that. Spaces. I mean, there's just so much going on. And then, of course, you think about um, people who are not married, who are extroverts, and now they have no way to connect with people. So I can just imagine that you all are really trying to figure out as a, you know, medical community, how do you um, provide support? for the group at a distance, but then how do you also likely prep for what will be a groundswell of need when we all come out of this? Yeah, and are you seeing people by Zoom I, or are you still meeting I people? am, that's why I was like rushing, remember I was like, I'm just wrapping up and coming to see, I'm seeing everyone on telly. So okay. right now we're making do with telly, um, you know, this, this is it. It's for some people, they love it. I, I've seen people in their bedrooms. <laughs> Oh <laughs> like, okay that is the color of your bedroom wall okay that is the color of your bedroom wall <laughs> that's the law <laughs> are you <laughs> that, is that a water bed is that a water bed where <laughs> i've seen people doing different things you know because when when people come out and, and they come to clinics it's they you know they're, they're their best selves and, and dress nice and now it's like and their pajamas. I've seen people in their pajamas, and, and and you know. Anyway, so right now, what we're we're limited, right? We we, we what what can we what we can control is how we come to people. So it's it's teletherapy, telepsychiatry, and so I'm still seeing people. This is my office. This is my boring office. <laughs> my home office. I intend <laughs> to decorate it once I can find something to put on there because. I didn't see this uh, home thing coming in. If you were my psychologist and I saw that wall behind you, I think you were going to diagnose me and, and for your infinity. I didn't think I was doing that. My real office is much better decorated, but I need this crash <laughs> private space. And this is what I came up with. I need to put something on the wall so it at least looks alive a little bit. But yeah, so it's, it's mostly what we've been doing now is the teletherapy, telepsychiatry, encouraging people, supporting them that way. Um, but so a lot of people love it 
a lot of people who have social anxiety actually doing well right now. I was telling another person about this, that interesting thing, some people are suffering now. So a lot of people who don't do well um, by themselves are suffering right now, but actually a lot of the kids, especially who have social anxiety, who used to have stressors from being at school, they're thriving. They're feeling amazing now because all they have to do is they wake up in their own time. They finish their homework. They submit it. Um, to the teacher teacher spends like 30 minutes whatever or whatever with them those kids are doing well those adults are doing well introverted adults but yeah a lot of people are suffering from isolation people are reaching out we're getting a lot of you know inquiries but telly is what we're limited to right now and hoping that when this is over sort of kind of over and we can get back in the office we can start to pick up where we left off but we're also anticipating a lot of um the people who are doing well now not doing so well once life returns to normal so um we're, we're taking it one day at a time yeah that's so interesting i wonder if we have two different sets of human beings like because that was uh, part of what people are saying is you know do or do we need to go back into the office you know because it seems like we're still able to be productive and a lot of you know the remote work means that lower you know costs Mm, right yeah and so i'm wondering i mean and then you have those who actually do want to be in the office so Mm -hmm. i'm wondering if you know because i mean there is some level of um human interaction that's required and that's needed but for a lot of us who are um you know introverted Mm -hmm. as you know i'm home with my family that's good that's amazing right yeah i just want i just need interaction once a week i want to go back to the office just once a week My, my my social interaction is home people. I go home to the home people, buy all the plants there. Sorry, Mac, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, no, um, so I'm just wondering if that's what it is. Like, we need to separate out the, the two groups, and then we, like, meet every once in a while. And, like, right. Or provide options. And I, and I like, you know, we're going to wrap up because I know you have to go. But, uh, but I love the idea now that what you just mentioned, children – you know, being able to, at least the ones who have social anxiety um, issues in the past, now they can wake up and, you know, kind of tap in as much as they want. But, you know, maybe that will introduce some innovation into our education system. Where, I hope so. Yeah, right? Where for those who want to be in a classroom environment, you know, this is available for you. And for others who opt out and choose not to, you can learn differently. You know, so I, I hope, you know, similarly, as you were talking about the workplace, you know, some people can work remotely, others may have the option of going to work. So I just hope what comes out of this is not a one size fits all model that we've yeah. always subscribed to, but more of a variation to choose, pick and choose what works for you. So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The counter argument to that that I've heard because it is that, well, these kids, if we let them just sit at home and never go to school, when they grow up, what if they have to work in a job where they have to interact with people and they never learn to? I don't have well, an answer to it. <laughs> some remote options at that job then. Yeah. Either that or... We're already moving in that direction. Anyways, I don't think people have to be forced to deal with people anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think, you know, we're, we're moving in a direction where... You, you honestly make money off of playing video games all day. So, like, when people are like, you, you can't play video games, and like, people are actually making money. Oh, social media. It's um, social influencers. Media. Yeah, yeah so, so that times are changing. But um, I have, I probably still have, like, a good seven questions that I didn't get to. Go ahead. I, just, I have time. No, no, okay. I was going to say, I mean, I feel, I feel like this, this is such an important 
conversation, I think, you know, mental health in general, particularly within the black community. And as we're trying, I mean, I mean, speaking of trauma, all the, you know, I try to control my space. And I know you tend to do that too, from, you know, stalking your Instagram, which I do. <laughs> but I haven't tapped as much into the... Amadio um, Aubrey. Yes. And George Floyd. Mentally, I need to protect my space. It's just so heavy. I can't, I can't watch the videos. I can't, I, I don't want to like let it into my psyche because I'm afraid of what it's going to do to me emotionally, you know? So I just feel like when you continuously expose yourself to certain things as a group of people and there's certain things that are floating around, especially when we have brown children, how is that impacting them? I mean, there's so much that needs to be sort of um, worked on, you know, for our mental health. And um, I think that, you know, it's a, it's a long, ongoing conversation because we continuously are getting exposed as a group to trauma together, you know, right. so it's a very um, scary time. thing. Yeah, I believe in protecting your, uh, you know, yeah, your mental health space. If you can't, if you feel like it'd be too much, there's nothing wrong with shielding yourself from it at least for a while i didn't see the the shooting video until just this week the, the amad albury happened several weeks ago i i didn't I, I couldn't look at it i just didn't feel like yeah. i was in a good headspace for it i only looked at it in the context of looking at george floyd this week i was like okay i, I can look mm-hmm. i i can handle what comes i can handle my feelings i'm in a better headspace to look at it and i don't think there's anything wrong with that if you feel like you need to protect yourself because it's too much it's like one you can't get a break that's what's on TV. When the COVID thing got too much, I turned off my TV. I wasn't watching news. All I really need to know is where do I show up for work? Where do yeah. I show up to get my food? I don't need to know the exact tally of how many people died today or, or whatever. I, I don't need to know it. And I had to start telling a lot of my patients because I had people who were like driving themselves into panic because they're stuck on TV 24-7 and they're having panic attacks and nightmares. And I'm like, turn it off. Right, what else are you going right. to find out that you didn't find out? There's COVID outside. We can't be outside. Same thing yesterday and today. Rehashing it and, and, and sucking it into your memory and psyche. But you're in high alert and you're being traumatized. And so you're having nightmares and you're thinking the worst possible thing is going to happen in the world. And turn it off. Yeah. So yeah. I, I am a big believer in that as well. Yeah. Turning yeah. it off. Yeah. No. Well, this is great. Thank you so much. So if we Thank were you. to close, um, you know, the one question that I did want to have and it looks like you've already started mentioning it what are some best practices you know um that you would just give to people in general to um like you you said prevention is better than I guess medication or having to have something yeah thank you so what are some good things that we should just be doing as a people during these times to really keep ourselves healthy similar to you know get up every day and exercise right if you want to keep physically healthy what are some good mental health habits that we can really tap into? Um, I would say taking stock is one good thing that I like to do. So in the mornings, the morning is my best time. I, I recommend like taking stock of where you are, what you've accomplished, what you hope to accomplish. Like in the morning, taking stock and, and taking stock at night. There's That's not like a very technical thing, but I think it's something that helps you to summarize what you've done, where you need to go and, and get you in a mentally prepared space for the mm-hmm. next day. Um, in terms of interactions also, I really, um, our interactions 
affect us in, in ways that we know or don't pay attention to or don't acknowledge often. I like to think about my interactions with people. Like I'm going to sit down and process our conversation now when this is all done. <laughs> yeah, I, hope you, I, hope, I hope it's not. I hope it's not like, anxiety. She's not, she's not going to break. She's going to analyze you. But I think it's nice to process it, how it made me feel and, yeah. and, and what I got out of it. And then so I can, you know, whatever, you know, sometimes there are things that you're attached to feelings or emotions that come with conversations that make you feel a certain way. I like to be able to process it and then, you know, offload it. So processing. Um, nice. Uh, and then, as far as, go ahead. I was gonna, what about, um, oh, sorry, did you have more? I thought no, you no, were, no, go ahead. <laughs> I will be better for next time. I'll be better. Um, I, was, I was thinking, you know, something, you know, when we are thinking about some days today, you're trying to push through fear. I mean, we're constantly, as much as you are trying to understand and study the anatomy of fear and how it shows up in you, you know, anxiety that comes as a result of, you know, trying to push through and do things that you want to do um, can also be somewhat difficult and debilitating. So what are your recommendations for that? So you're trying to um, not be okay with the status quo and push through, but just from doing that alone, you have to welcome anxiety, uncertainty. So what are your recommendations for how to push through that um, helpfully? push through anxiety like paralysis like like a paralysis from needing to do something well you know maybe um so a, a good way to do this is to explain is um you know sometimes when you are trying to maybe you need to do a career shift because you realize that your career is not good for you but you've been comfortable with it because you know it pays well it's, you, um, it's it's comfortable it's a comfortable space or even you know relationships there's some toxic relationships but you get it you know that you know i'm going to come home i understand the dynamic here so anytime you need to make a change right um there's a sense of anxiety that comes over you but sometimes the change is for the better so how do you do it in a way that doesn't throw you off kilter you know to where now you're exchanging one fear or bad situation for another, you know, bad anxiety around change. Okay. So <clears throat> what, what we recommend for any kind of anxiety in general is under, understanding what the fear is. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that fear in itself is a bad thing. The way that I teach about anxiety, there's a protect, protective factor to fear and anxiety because mm-hmm. if we didn't have some sort of fear and anxiety, we'll sit down and a lion will eat us or we'll, you know, jump the fire and jump to it again without learning from it. So it's protective when it's working well. Fear and anxiety become a bad thing when it cripples you from moving because then that also exposes you to other danger. The way we typically deal with fear or recommend dealing with fear and anxiety is taking stock of things. Um, understanding whether you're catastrophizing, so thinking of worst possible case scenarios, and presenting yourself with realistic scenarios. So you think of a situation, sometimes you're afraid because you're thinking of the worst possible scenario. This will not succeed. That's thinking of catastrophe. You can start Mm -hmm. to change your mindset about it by saying, well, is it really catastrophic? 
or that's just me exaggerating. Mm -hmm. Then you start to think about what's more realistic, what's more likely to happen, right? And then thinking about what's more likely to happen, you can then present yourself with, so if the worst happens, what's the outcome? What can I do about it? How can I correct it? Mm -hmm. Making a plan that way, I think, helps you then be able to move. And this is just, I'm, I'm not being specific. I'm giving like, this is like a cognitive strategy for fears and anxiety in general. So I don't want to drive. I'm afraid of driving because I'm afraid I'm going to have an accident. Is it true? Could an accident happen? Maybe. But what's more likely to happen is that you're not going to have an accident because thousands of people drive daily without an accident. That's presenting mm -hmm. yourself with reality. Well, if I were to have an accident anyway, which is the worst possible scenario, what can I do? Um, I can call for 911. I can make sure I'm wearing my seatbelt so that if an accident does happen, right, I don't get an injury, which is what we fear when we have an accident. So making preparations, presenting yourself at realistic situations, reassuring yourself with the probabilities, right, that's more, uh, that's closer to reality instead of the worst possible scenario. Is kind of some strategy of dealing with fears. And I think that we can ext extrapolate that to any kind of fear, really. Acknowledging yeah. our fear, knowing that it's not always a bad thing, and then dealing with it using those techniques. Ooh, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> that is a great sort of um, framework, you know, for people to really break it down. Because, you know, we talk about it in theory. We're like, okay, well, you know, feeling this fear, I don't know how to process it, but I love the framework you just presented, particularly around, you know, the, what's the, what are the probable causes versus the worst case scenarios that you've identified for yourself? And even in the worst case scenario, can you put some sort of plan in place to alleviate that unnecessary stress for you so that you know that you're good? But, um, yeah. Thank you. Mac, you familiar with CBT? They have some technical terms. I just, you know, I'm not floating around with technical terms right now, but that, 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 that's a framework. Yeah, yes. Um, it's been a while, although <laughs> it, it's been a while. And definitely, you know, do not try to test me. No, I'm not trying to test you. It's just because I know there's technical terms for it, but when you speak into people, it's hard to like throw in technical. So I forget a lot of the technical terms. I kind of just try to explain it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. The I, I am, you know, um, and I think I think this this it's what we primarily you know, without, so one of the things I do say is like um, psychology, being a major in psychology just gives me a vocabulary so I can speak to things that people who are analytical, I think, are doing one way or another. So sometimes people will tell you, okay, if they are, in essence, being a good friend and giving you advice, they will do that same kind of thing and be like, well, you know, how bad could it be? You know, like think, getting you to think differently and that way now you can behave differently. And I know that there's the opposite side of that, which is, you know, if you start to behave, it's kind of like um, this tiger mom type of thing. You're forced to do a certain thing, and because you now start to, you know, um, feel a certain way about it, feel, feel less anxiety about it, now that's uh -huh. changing. So I, I forget the term that's used for that. Um, like the that exposure? Point. Yeah, it, you know, exposure could be it. So, for Flooding. example, if you have fear of height, and, you know, you first start to think about it, and then you you know, you bring them there and they look over and that sort of thing. So it's like behavior then changes the mind, I think. Yeah. You know, depending on the fear and depending on the person, I guess you can try different things. Uh, yep. Like, I, yeah, I, I, am, uh, I, I remember once, once upon See? a time. 
I love this so much. I, we could do this forever, but I understand this you have been fun. This has been fun. We're <laughs> we will probably ask for um, another part, but right now we are just so blessed that you were so kind Aww, to come thank on you. and bless us in this way. So thank you. Thank um, you. And, and I wanted to plug, so, you know, you mentioned your, uh, your practice, so everyone can, um, you know, go to brightmindsmd.com. Can you speak That's to it. More about, okay, yeah. And, and is that how they find you and um, join your practice and sign yeah. up to see you? Okay. Yeah, that's essentially how uh, people find me. It's uh, I, I'm very tech-based. I'm new generation, so everything nice. is all online. The calendar is online. You fill a form, gives you the calendar. You put your information, find out what insurance is. It's all online. It's the best way to, to get in. And everything is telly right now because we're all not seeing each other <laughs> yeah yeah well i love it um thank you so much everyone check out www.brightmind.brightmindsmd.com we'll put it in thank you yes, yes yeah and gosh yeah the the instagram link is uh for uh, for the for me is uh dr bolanli that's doctor and underscore my name bolanli and for bright minds md is just at bright minds md on nice. Instagram. I haven't posted there in a minute. <laughs> well, somebody today. Get it done. <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining. And as always, Max, what do we tell our people? Um, thank you for joining us for uh, some days today where we encourage you to live your life like it's a fucking vacation. Woo! I love it. Thank you. Yeah, regardless to everyone, thank you. And um, we'll send you a copy of this so that you can see it Share and it. post it up. Yeah, but this is great. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. See, it wasn't as if fan as I thought. You know, whenever you're smarter than your host, you're not more comfortable. <laughs> so like, what can they throw at me? You can always revert to, well, when I was a beautiful school. <laughs> <laughs>